need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, what are we characters in the great American novel? It's Andy Greenwald! Happy Thursday, buddy. Oh, it's always a happy Thursday when I see you. Hello to you. Hello to our listeners. Hello to Kaya. Uh, we are here to talk about industry, which is my favorite show on TV. I saw I, many people are saying that I say that a lot. Have you noticed that? I think we get very excited for shows when they first come on. Did you notice that? I, I have noticed our tendency to get excited about things. Yes. It's because it's we're optimists. So, so sue us, you know? Like I know. Just, just two guys who love television and then stop it's talking about America. things. <laughs> um, no, but we're excited to talk about industry. This is a show that has really clicked for us and it hit us on a lot of different levels. Um, so we'll talk about that. We're going to talk... I have my conversation with Amanda Dobbins about the middle section of The Crown Season 4. That'll be the second half of the show. So let's get into the watch right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Andrew, what's up, man? Chris, I just want to, on behalf of Kaya and all our <laughs> listeners, I want to wish you a very happy birthday. You like to keep oh, it low pro, you. but it was Chris's birthday this what week. Does it, what would non, like not being low pro be? Like getting on Twitter and being like, it's my birthday? No, I think uh, having a Kendall Jenner-esque blowout oh, yeah. at a I, WeHo hotspot, which yeah. you probably would have done in any other year. <laughs> I, I also want to say uh, congratulations because you know, not to make light of a very situ serious situation in the world, but it turns out that that you share your birthday with a, a plucky little celeb called COVID-19. I really do wish it was the bat. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, the inciting incident. The, the, bat that, like, the bat was like my baby Yoda and I could just like carry him around and just be like, you and me, big guy. That bat is a legend. The big, well, big 4-3. I think it's pretty amazing because, you know, I, I that you can't really read the tea leaves of celebrities you share a birthday with. But I think, for example, my mother was always a little bit bummed that she shares her birthday, February 6th, with Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. who was not a big fan sure. of his work in, in, in cinema or <laughs> the White House. <laughs> it went both ways. Okay. Um, and I've always been a little bit perplexed by my birthday, which I share predominantly with uh, Malcolm X and Lorraine Hansberry, uh, 
proud of both, but I don't know many common areas we have between us. <laughs> did you but did you go see Spike Lee's Malcolm X like opening day because of birthday buddies? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yes. That's why I also saw Puff Diddy's Broadway debut in A Raisin in the Sun. Because I was like, this is that there's I, I, I have no way to get myself out of this one. But <laughs> let's turn it back to you to say, like, do you feel is this going to cast a pallor on your birthday going forward? The the fact that the first documented case of COVID occurred on November seventeenth. Uh, yeah. You know, I think I I, I I'll, I'll I'm going to be okay. I think I'm looking forward to next year where we can hopefully celebrate more in person, more together, uh, go to a bar, you know, watch watch a bad Thursday night football game together, and that that'll be a present enough. Okay, I will. I I look forward to that too. I will attend this gathering with uh, vaccine needles still dangling out of both arms. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> Just jab me. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Wonder Woman coming to HBO Max. This is sort of the yes. biggest entertainment news of the week, I would imagine. Is the announcement that Wonder Woman eighty four, the sequel to the very popular and, and beloved Wonder Woman film from the DC superhero comics cinematic universe. Uh, this had been bumped off the schedule several times or, you know, held f- several times this year. Uh, can't remember the original release date, but it was, a, uh, it, it was summer 20. I, I, it, was, I, it was early summer. I track the release dates of blockbusters the way many lay people do. And by that, I mean, Frito lay people. I look <laughs> at the outside of my bag of Cool Ranch Doritos and learn. And this is hard to tell what season it is in Los Angeles. I'm like, yeah, oh, right. There's Gal Gadot. It is clearly soon to be summer because Wonder Woman's coming. Right. So it's delayed, delayed. Figure comes next year. Um, and and you know, you and I have talked about like there is starting to become a little bit of a traffic jam of releases that were supposed to come up this year versus releases that were supposed to come next year. What are they going to do? You know, generally they like to give things a little bit of room to breathe. They figured it out because they're going to put Wonder Woman eighty four on HBO Max uh, on Christmas Day. Now, it will also be released in some theaters, but the way things are going, it's hard to imagine which theaters those are outside of some drive-ins. Um, or why anyone should go to them, speaking sure. candidly and frankly. And, you know, we have talked before about the idea of, you know, well, what would you pay for a new release? Like, mm. would you would you pay 40 bucks for Tenet, you know, to watch on Apple TV or something? Would you pay 40 bucks or 50 bucks to watch Bond? on a streaming service. This one's just, this is a huge thing to put in the, on the shelf on the window display for HBO max to get people to sign up if they haven't already. And for a service that I think has a good library. And as we've said before, HBO's had a really nice run this year. I think that there has been some confusion around HBO max in terms of if I have HBO, do I have HBO max? Is it on Roku and or Amazon fire? You know, all, all of the little, it, there's Go still exists, now it doesn't. Now still exists, now it doesn't. This is a nice reset for the streaming service and obviously kind of a, a nice present for people who are really looking forward to this movie. I guess if you are looking at things the way we increasingly have to, which is through the filter of there are only five companies and moves can't be within them, shouldn't be judged um, context-free, uh, then this has been objectively a pretty good to great week for Warner Media because, as you alluded to just now, it's not just that they've announced the crown jewel of Warner Brothers Films 2020 slate, Wonder Woman 1984 is coming to HBO Max, they also announced an imminent deal with Roku, meaning more people will finally be able to get the service, which had been a huge stumbling block for its brand, its success, blah, blah, blah. So that I, I can 
see that you can spin this as a win because it's all in the same kingdom and it's just reallocating assets. And if, you know, in five years, uh, we look back f- freshly vaccinated yet again uh, and say that this was a turning point for HBO Max as a must-have service, then absolutely everyone involved will look at this as a as a big win, right? This was the thing, this was the killer app that got them the subscriber benchmarks that they wanted or needed to, right. to move forward. Sure. My, uh, But if you put all that aside for a moment, I have to say it feels really unlucky mainly because when the pandemic hit and the blockbuster movie business effectively was shut down for 12 to 18 months, if you look at which companies were left holding which cards, Warner may have had the the worst situation. And I say, this be, I say this because the movies that were directly affected this year, right? For Marvel, it was uh, Marvel slash Disney. It was... Um, Black Widow, um, they had a Pixar movie at the very beginning onward. But I think kids' movies, we could almost separate out because I just think they'd probably naturally do better on streaming. People will buy them because the kids need to see them and they watch them again and again and again. So let's say that let's say that it was just primarily um, Black Widow. I mean, Marvel, this happened to Disney Marvel in kind of a throat-clearing period. I'm, Black Widow actually looks pretty cool and the people involved make it seem like it might be an actually, you know, good to decent movie on its own rights and its own merits. But this isn't like, I mean, can you imagine if Avengers Endgame was suddenly in this limbo? Mm -hmm. Is there a world where anyone would feel good about that going to Disney Plus? Mainly because that movie was the victory lap culmination of the Walt Disney Company's entire cinematic strategy for a decade. And it was built with moments, moments that have now increasingly become just memes uh, that were made for cheering and whooping in theaters, right? Sure. And and and, and that so and and experience. and if our experience with Wonder Woman is any evidence, then that's what Wonder Woman was too. Exactly that. It's not just that. It, it's and it's not just that. I mean, the the no man's land scene in the first movie is it's an iconic scene, and it was a rousing, crowd pleasing moment. And I would imagine the second movie has that as well. But it's also that you know this was this is their successful franchise. It's not. This is the one that got right. Yeah. Yeah, it's the one they got right and it's the one that has the most growth potential and it's the one the success of the Wonder Woman franchise directly impacts all the other moves that DCU or DC Warner whatever you want to call it whatever whatever moves they make next and and we've talked many times and we'll continue to talk I'm sure about their kind of decentralized strategy where you can make a suicide squad and a Joker and a the Batman and a whatever and, sure. and that's probably a smart play long term but they still wanted to be in the big running with the big dogs and this was their biggest dog. And so for it to, it feels a little odd, right? I mean, that, that, that's basically my, my sense about it. This is, this is a true blockbuster and probably the first, not entirely the last that is going to be on cable. Right. First. Right. I want to know what, how we're going to evaluate the success of things going forward. And I wonder Mm -hmm. whether or not Wonder Woman 84 will give us some sense of that, you know, As we talked about a couple weeks ago when Mindhunter was sort of unofficially or officially unofficially canceled when Fincher has just basically been like, yeah, it was a very expensive show to make and not enough people watched it. And I don't know why he said that. You know, like, like, I don't know that, you know, there's not like evidence to suggest that that is the case. And I'm sure he's right. And I'm sure he's just being a candid guy doing an interview. 
But you don't really, we don't really know any of this stuff. All we know is that Queen's Gambit is number one on Netflix mm-hmm. and that it's being referenced in NFL broadcasts. That gives us a sense that it is a big deal that a lot of people are watching and a lot of people are talking about it. The thing that box office does, and it's been probably a deleterious thing for the actual art of movie making, but very useful in terms of just understanding what people are watching and why they're watching it and where they're watching it is it's just clean. It gives us a clean understanding of popularity of things. Now, obviously, it's become the dominant force in shaping what movies do get made and when they get released, and that's probably not a good thing. But when Wonder Woman drops on Christmas Day, HBO Max should just be like, yep, huge success. You know, I mean, like, there, there's no oh, other... They will. Yeah, I mean, there's no other narrative that's going to come out of this. There's nothing where it's going to be like, nobody watched this. Their subs will go up inevitably, at least in, at least incrementally, and I, I just am curious because so much of the success of these superhero films are tied to this one number, to what it did in global box office versus what it did from what it was budgeted. What what do we, how are we going to evaluate the success and, of these things? And I would take it one step further. Why are we going to keep doing these things under the old way? And what I mean specifically about that is. That in some ways, the, the danger for the studios, or at least to the studios who have fully invested in a certain way of budgeting and a certain way of scheduling themselves and doing things, and we've talked about that before, a lot of that has to do with showing the spreadsheet to the shareholders that six times a year you're going to hit these billion-dollar box office targets right. or whatever based on this IP. It's a very slippery slope because once you stop pretending certain things, like you can only make movies at this price point if you release them in theaters and recoup globally X, Y, and Z. Uh, you can only get big stars to commit to do this if it's going to be released in a theater. You can only pull off certain special effects or event-driven things if it is in the theaters. As those things start to drop away, and, and that's been part of our conversation recently anyway, because The Mandalorian looks like The Rise of Skywalker in a lot of ways. I mean, when they fly into new planets yeah. i'm like okay yeah. it's star wars when they when they there's blow no, that barge up i'm like yep that's pretty good <laughs> yeah there's no appreciable difference to my eye um so once you establish that you can do these things anyway why are you doing them the old way and in some cases that's i think something to be sad about because you know i wonder woman and avengers endgame were very 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 enjoyable communal experiences to look forward to and see in a theater and i really dug that and as a longtime cinephile and the person who speaks up constantly in this podcast for the sanctity of film as a art form you know that matters to me but the flip side of that is and i'm sorry to keep ragging on this terrible movie but like you look at rise of skywalker and why truly why i mean it, it is what it is because it was trying to fit in all these impossible holes and 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 hoops and benchmarks that it felt required to hit and and i and by that i mean it had to be made in a ridiculously compressed amount of time in order to hit the shareholder approved release date it had to be made at a certain tempo level and action level meaning rating to be able to play across four quadrants and to do well in china and to x y and z you know it had to accomplish all these impossible things. And so what you were left with was, you know, for us anyway, the equivalent of like a two-hour stress dream. You know, it, it was just, it was an unpleasant experience of being pummeled with market indicators. Mm-hmm. And once you say, well, you don't really have to do that. You could tell a Star Wars movie here, or we could make, spend this money here and then write it off because it's growing our growth business, which is the streaming service. 
it kind of all goes away, right? And I think there are people who are heavily invested in keeping things propped up the way they have been propped up because of paydays or prestige or whatever. But a couple more things like this, and we definitely, and then I do think that we emerge blinking into your birthday party next year in, <laughs> with, in a very, very different media landscape. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk a little bit about industry. Uh, a little bit. I mean, let's talk, let's talk for the rest of our lives about this show. <laughs> uh, I want to be measured in my praise for it because I know that it's really, uh, it's really my bag. So I'm not trying to be like, this show is just like a flawless, perfect angel. But in some ways, it kind of, I, I kind of feel like this, this is how I felt like when Succession was getting started. Now, I don't know that it will ever become a cultural phenomenon the way Succession did. I think it's kind of impenetrable in some ways, so that'll probably stop it from that. But the way uh, they're setting this show up where you, I'm, where I am incredibly interested in these characters and totally happy to spend time with them on a week-to-week basis and just explore this world and hear this language. And yet, there's not like yet a what happens next week on industry? What is the central question of this show? It's like, I suppose, like, which of these young people will make it through Riff? Although I, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, whether they do or don't, we we care about the people we're seeing. Uh, they've just kind of found this un- intoxicating thing that's hitting me on the two things, the two levels. It's like sex and drugs and new wave and just all the like sort of visceral feeling you can get from watching a show. And then the kind of, intellectual tickling of the funny bone where you've got these moments between Eric and Harper or Kenny and Yasmin and these, these kinds of rituals that they're going through in this show that I find like fascinating. I like really, really, really like shows that are not too good for themselves that aren't, don't get cute and precious about the potential to be appealing, you know, to be liked, to be not just admired, but to be loved and look, fundamentally, this show is very comfortable being a program about young people getting after it. Mm-hmm. And it's super fun because it's fun to be a young person getting after it. It's fun to engage in the worlds of young people getting after it. And it, it in this case, could be anything from, right, sex, drugs, or like high yield market caps. I sure. don't know what that means. So it is a pleasurable experience first and foremost to watch the show. And I think that's what, that's what we're responding to. And I think that, you know, to your point about, about succession, I think is well made because it's just a blast. You know, I think ultimately it could go in a lot of different directions. I think it's project is fundamentally different because succession is, you know, written by people of a certain age about people of a certain age who should know better. And this is a show made by younger people, but still, I think, older, obviously, than the characters, but about people that could go in any direction. Mm-hmm. You know, their morality is in flux. Sure. Um, as as is, and, and is their sexuality and their sort and of sobriety? And, their blood alcohol levels yeah, and right. all of that. So that was, for me, I mean, whenever we, we engage the new drama series, even ones that we potentially overrate, one of the first checkpoints is the second episode, because the second episode... You know, it's the moment when you kind of have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, second episodes are usually the pilot, but, you know, slower and maybe not as uh, aesthetically interesting, with, with less aesthetically interesting direction because there's less time to make it. This didn't fall into that trap. You know, th- what I really enjoyed about this episode was that it just kept going, much like uh, 
God, what's his name? What what's our little Aryan friend? So I I feel like all those guys are named Robbie, and I'm just gonna I know I'm just I gonna say call him Stephen or Thomas or yeah, Robbie. I, I'm just gonna say that they're all named Robbie unless it's they're named Gus. <laughs> well, we not Gus. I know. Yeah. Right. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on, everybody. Uh. Robert's the guy with the, the, the Harry Potter glasses doing coke in the bathroom during the, the graduate. Fake, fake Harry Potter glasses. Yeah, right, right. Which is, which is incredible. Um, yeah, I, I guess that I, I really appreciated that the show was just like, okay, we are now going to hit the ground running with, you know, an enormous number of characters, many of whom are named Robbie. And we're going to just keep pushing on all of them. And suddenly, you know, what could potentially have been a Harper POV show as she makes her way through a confusing and unfamiliar world, there is no one POV character, which I think is a really smart choice. And, uh, you know, I think both of our takeaway from this was like, oh, we're going to do all of this now? Yeah. You know, in relation to like Yasmin, a character we barely knew in the pilot. And then we, you know, just the dinner alone with our guy from uh, End of the Fucking World slash Tibby from Howard's End, uh, just doing just doing the most delicate delicate key bumps at the dinner party like that could have been a dainu moment like that's enough we get this character now now let's sure. move on but no we're gonna go all the way uh and spend an in, basically an entire 24 hours with her life and her professional and sexual frustrations and it's a blast yeah and it's a blast and there's clearly still a lot of story left to go i thought that the moment between yasmin and that guy in the uh in the salad place was very really good writing because you learned a lot about Yasmin without it actually being explicit. It's been interesting to watch industry in conjunction with The Crown because The Crown is beautifully written, but almost every character in The Crown can at any given moment tell you exactly how they're feeling and exactly who they are and exactly why they feel that way. And it's, it's wonderful writing, but they're all always aware of how their parenting affected their childhood and has thus affected their adulthood. Like, they, it's just stunning. And if they're in a relationship, they can say, like, you're not, love, you don't love me enough, and hence I am like this. I'm in pain. And it's it, it's very poetic language, but the it's kind of interesting to watch a group of characters who can't articulate these things and don't I, know who they are and don't know how to say, I'm this way because of this. And when you watch Yasmin in that salad place talking to the Spanish guy who is going out on his own and is sort of saying like, you know, I had to get salad. Everybody has to get salads or whatever. Um, you know, you get this quick glimpse into this international uh, social group that Yasmin obviously belongs to, but is doing a level of work that's probably beneath that, that sort of strata. Chris, have you ever been to Barcelona? <laughs> So that guy's that guy's that was he was he was Catalonian, right? Because he was crushing the bar the the Catalonia. No, that I mean that is just that's just how posh Spanish people. Okay, that's the accent. Gotcha. It's it's great Catalonian <laughs> art. I love it. Um, <laughs> I agree with you a hundred percent about your point, and I think it it what it what it does is showcase how nice it is to have a show that is about youth and the present. Mm -hmm. Um, much like I May Destroy You, which I think was, you know, more compact and artful in a lot of ways, but I, I don't really even see, feel the need to compare them because you give me a show about young people doing drugs in London, apparently I'm in. Um, I would contrast industry and the pleasures of it, not just to The Crown, which I think your point seems great, even though I don't watch the show. <laughs> also, take my word to another, for it. <laughs> another show that we are watching, but not really talking about together anymore, which is Fargo. And it, it, it's an unfair comparison. Could not be more different. Totally different projects. But I'll say that the, 
the project of Fargo has been more dominant in our prestige television recently. And what I mean by that is uh, period piece saying with something to say. And that is such a tricky needle to thread. It is a valuable one and a valid one, but it's a tricky one because every scene you're watching in Fargo is about many, many, many things, including mm-hmm. Noah's ambitions as a filmmaker and increasingly, um, you know, the systemic rot of race relations in yeah, this country. Yeah, I mean, it's it's much more like an essay this year than it has been, than it is a story to me. And, and so to your point, like if in The Crown, they're like, this is what my childhood did to me because it's being written by an older person, Peter Morgan, from the perspective of this all being history. And mm-hmm. you can comment on it and you're aware of that as you're watching it. Chris Rock walks into a room and he sees Hummel figurines and he's just like, imagine being owned. And it's like, okay, but also, do you want to get your son back? Like, we're doing a lot here. Yeah. And when you watch industry, it's just like, these are kids. And what they want to do is finish the line that's laid out in the toilet and then find out if they're getting a raise. And it's like, I'm I'm here with you. I yeah. would like to know that too. It is an open question. I'm not saying it's as important as the issue of systemic racism in America. I'm saying I am with you for the discovery of it because it is new to all of us. And it, it, the show is just really good at keeping you on your heels. I think that the Eric Harper relationship is going to be awesome. You and I were texting about this when, when you watched the second episode. His weirdness in the second episode, like, you know, he kind of comes off as the typical brash, brainy, kind of Glengarry vibes of in the first episode, this this character, Eric, played by Ken Long. And then in the second episode, he is much like quite literally undressed. Like as he is begins the episode getting yeah. dressed in the middle of the of the, the trading floor. And I think he's clearly like losing his grip on the desk that he has. He has this protege and their relationship is not mentor-protege, really. It's more like developing a codependence on each other, although I don't think Harper is aware of that yet necessarily. But it, I love it when they substitute sort of emotional vulnerability as the actual currency that they're working with. And there's a scene between Eric and Harper and this guy, uh, Philemon, who's played by, you know what, I, don't, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's in every British miniseries that I like. It's, it's probably Robbie. It's, but he's in like Honorable Woman. Like he's just yes. in a bunch of stuff that's great. Uh, he was, in, he was the dad in Broadchurch and, you know, inexplicably is just like dipping his finger in a glass of milk before he drinks some at this meeting. And they have this whole conversation where Eric clearly needs Harper to step in and help him out there. But what he's doing is keeping this relationship with this client going by being like, who cares if I made a fool of myself? Like, is that, is that really worth the money to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, this is one of those things. I think Chris and I are obviously all the way in on this season and we're interested in it as a project. We're trying to be measured because our enjoyment doesn't doesn't necessarily uh, immediately correlate to this is God level. You know, we yeah, don't know. Right. But we're really excited about where we are so far. And in that spirit, I'm extremely excited about the potential of that particular relationship in the show because I think a uh, a, a older male, younger woman mentor relationship that isn't going into uh, dark, abusive, harassing territory, which so far it does not seem that it is. And I'm grateful for that. Maybe I'm wrong and I'll have to you know, revisit this and talk about what I wanted versus what it's going to be. And maybe I'll still be wrong because it's done artfully and well. All that said, that's a relationship that I think is un, un, underexplored in, um, in television, particular, particularly television about the workplace. And there's something very interesting and compelling about it, mainly because, in this case anyway, 
it feels wonderfully all gray. We root for Harper because she's kind of our POV character, even though she's hiding some stuff and has some secrets. And we're rooting for Eric because he's being nice to her at the start. He's giving her opportunities. And he's right? funny, and then, yeah. And, yeah, and he's funny, and Ken Long is just really delivering a phenomenal performance. But what I love about it is that we're predisposed to like both of them and like this relationship, but it's keeping us on our toes as to who's getting more value from it and what it might mean going forward. I, I We already can tell this is not a show where they're going to be cut and dry heroes. Um, but what does being quote unquote good even mean in a landscape this rapacious? We don't know, but it is very compelling. Uh, it's very compelling to watch. I have to ask you a question specifically. You mentioned the floor, their workplace. Um, you know, I haven't, well, none of us work in offices anymore, so it's yeah. a good point. But I haven't in a long time. But when I would go in to like the the floor of like Grantland, for example, you know, there would be a lot of people sitting in like open desks and whatever, a lot of computers on. But generally, every screen <laughs> As opposed would to have, typewriters. Well, just like getting, I'm trying to say, I don't know how old our listeners form? are anymore. I'm just sure. just saying. You know, everyone would have like, there would be a Google Doc or a Microsoft Word Doc open, whether people were writing something or editing someone else's work. But there would also be like, you know, a a plethora of tabs and Twitter and YouTube windows or whatever, because that was also the job. And what I keep thinking, every person on this show has at least four monitors, right? Mm -hmm. But not four monitors the way like David Shoemaker would have four monitors because he was you know, designing a web page. Right. This just has data on it, and their job is to look at it. And what is the protocol of being like, oh, there's a Woj bomb. I should just keep that open in a small tab. You know what I mean? Like, I get if the I feeling you, like those guys don't have Woj open. Like, I feel like that's much that's, more like I was at work for 12 hours, and then I came out and found out the Sixers traded Al Horford. It's not like... I was about to trade on like the U- U.S. Treasury bonds, and then I got distracted by Clay Thompson's injury. It's that's how, not how it happens. How would you do in that? Oh, because that, why do you think I'm like a fucking blogger? Like, I'm not, do you, that's you think, what I'm saying. Do you think if I had the it, attention span and the acumen, like the affinity with numbers, I would be doing this? I mean, let me come down from my ivory tower to make this observation, and I apologize for the privilege, in, you know, inherent in this in this comment, but like. I generally have thought of the modern workplace as screen job or no screen. And no screen for me is just like a teacher, right? Who's in sure. a classroom right. or an attorney or, you know, or a, a, an auto worker, any person who is the job is dependent on not having screens. And then there's right. screen jobs where it's okay to be texting each other Marco Pierre White cooking videos uh, ad nauseum during the morning. Just to we're, no, example, I mean, we should say here. that we are in the, upper percentile of distracted morons like we fair i think because i still get the impression that there are people out there who are able to concentrate on a task and kind of get through it and be like i have a lot of work today so please don't bother me so good i can't do that it's so good i mean i i we i we talked about this offline but like the most beautiful thing that happened to me this week was our our mutual friend texted me and said hey have you ever watched these bon appetit cooking videos they're so positive and great And I was like, oh, oh, I just sent him the Wikipedia page for, for Milkshake Duck. You know, I was just like, and he's not, he's extremely offline and I think he's happier. So I wouldn't say that the people at Pierpont are happier because. Well, they're high all the time. <laughs> they're also high. So that there's that too. They are also, they are also high all the time. That is, that is true. Um, do you relate at all? And obviously we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about the show, talking about the things in the margins to the salad orders. 
because I have to say this is and you've been into London and not to paraphrase picking, kicking and screaming but you've actually been to London been what to where London they're recently. all just getting Cobb salads stocked with bacon and Stilton well that's the thing so the dude who's harassing Yasmin I, I assume his name is Robbie he definitely seems like a bore in Kenny. all senses including Kenny. that he probably fought for the wrong side in South Africa at some point in, <laughs> in his life but he also I was like that dude is lining up from the salad mafia, like even Harper is getting a sando. You know what I mean? But like that dude, right. Kenny, is just like, get me, get me whatever is the market selection at Sweet Green. But you, you're so good at this, Chris. You noticed that that dude's salad is a styrofoam box with three pieces of lettuce and four rashers of bacon. Yeah, because I've been to England and I, I know I know what happens there. Here's some stuff that happens in England. <laughs> they they don't have ice. They just don't That's have true. it. When That's you true. say I'll have a cocktail on, if you if you ask for like a shot, like a whiskey, a whiskey on the rocks, okay. they put an ice cube in there and then they make like whatever the like smallest possible definition of a single yes. drink slug is, that's what they have. And they almost seem to have bottles that don't allow to pour any more of that. And they do. you know, they measure they measure uh, servings. Right. But they are on the low end of that. There is no like, ah, bartender, just a little bit extra wrist magic in there. And just no, give me a little bit more. It's interesting because I, look, credit where credit is due. And I think Europeans in general, like, you know, they, they are, they are, they are to alcohol as Bane is to chaos. You know what I mean? Like they were born in it. They invented that shit. Yes. And yet. I was recently reading an interview with uh, someone that we've interviewed in the past and we love his work very much, Stuart Braithwaite of the great band Mogwai. Yeah. And he was talking about like, there's some interview about like drinking while on tour in America. And we saw them in the late 90s, interviewed them after, you know, they had, to quote ourselves here. I, I believe it, I saw that band and their first experience with the, the uh, idea of a Long Island iced tea. Yes. Right. I, I saw their version... And- sailing on, on those on those seas <laughs> a rocky a rocky trip as it is for all of us voyage. as it is and, for all and, of us but in this interview he was just like well you know i i like i'll drink like you have a lot of interesting like craft beers in american bars now because i don't drink spirits anymore which was i think a tell as to why they're successful in their soundtracking and record making life but he was like the thing is that's risky in america is that if you tip the bartender or whatever you will get a very lead-wristed pour. Because he's basically saying, like, you can't get any variation right. in the UK. You just it's, get your it's, single... That's another thing, is that uh, the tipping thing is really weird. Like, I can never tell, like, am I supposed to leave the 20p at the end of this thing? But is that really, like, a, a tip? Should I leave, like, another pound? And then, right. so there's no ice. And then the basic theme of their salads is what would a 19th century plowman eat? You know, <laughs> if he had access to all the dairy and all the pork products that he could put in his salad. So I'm sure uh-huh. they've made strides here and like they've got kale over there. Although last time I was there, they were acting like they just discovered burgers. So like, I'm not sure if kale's hit England yet, but when you go there and you get a salad, it's just, it's just a big bowl of Stilton cheese. Should we be proud though? Because I think there was a time when the transatlantic trade was more robust, right? Where like we gave them blues and rock and roll and they then the Beatles came back and like, you know, that that's some good, uh-huh. that's some good stuff. And now, I mean, we're exporting kale 
and social media disinformation. Like that's what we're sending <laughs> back right. over there. You guys can have kale and QAnon. Yeah, I'm like, actually, your salads sound good because that's that's okay. That's good food. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's not like I, it doesn't lower your cholesterol by by eating that salad, though. Or anything. I guess going by industry and the the sort of you know the the currency that they that they use, not literally because. I can't fathom amounts that high. The other thing that I think they have to offer us is Harper keeps mentioning, and I don't know how much we'll mention going forward on this podcast, is just Boku to Uncut D. Mm. Like that's something that Harper really harps on. And again, I just kind of admire it. I admire the dedication. Yes. I just like that nothing about this show is particularly abstemious in its appetites, you know? It's a good way of putting it. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. On Monday, Andy and I will talk about um, Undoing and Mandalorian. We have a very special guest on Monday's podcast. So make sure you watch The Undoing on Sunday night if you're a watch listener. And yeah, we have a great week of stuff next week. We'll have the, no Thursday show next week, though, because it's the holidays. So we'll, we'll be taking just so we'll one have a, next we'll have week. a great, great day of stuff. <laughs> That's right. We'll have one good day. <laughs> and then we'll hey, move on. listen. One good day is really all we can take at a time here in 2020 America. So stay tuned for my uh, second of three conversations with Amanda Dobbins about this season of The Crown. We'll be covering episodes four, five, and six. Some great ones in there. And I'll talk to you on Monday, man. Have a great, great weekend, Franskis. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I am now joined by Amanda Dobbins, our resident crown expert. Amanda, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure. And was it your pleasure to watch these middle three episodes of The Crown season four? Absolutely. They're crushing it. Are you kidding me? This stuff is, it's really good. We're talking today about favorites, Fagin, and Tara Nullis. And so Mm -hmm. this is basically, it's the episode with all the kids, the episode with the guy who breaks into the palace, and the episode where Charles and Diana go to Australia. And I have to say that I think four, I've seen a few people ding four uh, here and there for some reason, you know, maybe because it's too, too well kind of, they put too much of a bow on it. I think it's fucking extraordinary. Like if I, I, I thought that favorites was 
a really like startling achievement in dramatic writing. And just in terms of the amount of stuff that they burn through and the way that they bring in all these characters, what did you, what did you think of that episode? I agree with you. And I have not seen any criticisms because I don't really consume social media anymore, but to anyone who thinks it's too neat or they put a bow on it, I mean, I guess find another show. Uh, This is like, you know, Peter Morgan is a playwright. There is a lot of construction and, um, intentional thematic and expositional dialogue and set pieces built into this. It's not, it's not that it's obvious, but all of it is like very crafted. So I agree with you that I thought episode four was tremendous in terms of the amount of like information and setup that they managed to convey to you in a very like efficient and effective way. Because we don't really know anything about two of the four children. Yeah. You barely met any of them. Anne has been kind of a side character. And so there are four children who get their own scenes and moments. And so you have to develop those characters. You have to develop the queen's relationship to all of them. You also have the Margaret Thatcher thematic connection mm-hmm. of the of the children. And you're drawing out a little bit about Margaret Thatcher's relationship to women as well, which is an important, larger thematic episode. And also you've got the Falklands War. I mean, it's, and, and they do it deftly. And I thought about something you say a lot, which is that the, the crown doesn't like, doesn't waste a moment. They just pick the scenes, they pick the lines and you know, everything you need to know. That is so hard. And they nail it. Yeah. I mean, they, they do a lot of stuff that I think other shows would probably shy away from because it would feel too like it, they were they were showing you too many of their cards. So I, I kept thinking about the scene between Elizabeth and Anne. You know, they go riding out. This is the mm-hmm. thing that they sort of both share is this love of horses, even though Anne is obviously Philip's favorite. And that's like in the way that that gets conveyed in the beginning. And their conversation is heartbreaking. You know, like their conversation yeah. is legitimately heartbreaking. And I think you could look at what Anne says, where she's like, I used to enjoy being the difficult one and scaring people. Mm-hmm. And now I don't feel like I have any control over that anymore. Mm-hmm. And you could be like, well, like you might go your entire life and never have that level of self-awareness. You know, you might have to go through 30 years of therapy to find that out about yourself. And this young woman just like sort of pops that off when confronted by her mother on a random day. But it's beautiful writing. It's just, it's just like amazing writing. And I, I thought the performances specifically in that scene, mostly because the three sons come off as absolute troll lords in, in this episode. I mean, yeah, but the Anne scene in particular was, was quite lovely, I thought. Listen, I think that there are levels of emotional breakthrough and clarity in this show that never happened in real life and certainly have never happened in the UK to anyone who is <laughs> absolutely right. of that country. Andy so and I just I, spent a lot of time talking about salads in England uh, as sure. they relate because they get a lot of salads in industry and how yeah. most of their salads are just blue cheese and bacon. Their emotional <laughs> relationships are blue cheese and bacon too. They are not talking, right. they're not doing the, the smart greens. No, I mean, it's a, it's a TV show and we are projecting emotions and trying to figure out how these people felt about the facts that we know are true. That's what I think is so interesting about episode four, uh, which made me reflect a little bit on the queen character in this season. And an interesting thing is happening. We talked a little bit about this on the last episode where the Olivia Coleman is kind of popping out a little Mm -hmm. bit. 
And Olivia Coleman is one of the great actresses of our time. And also I find her personally hilarious. So I think that that's great. But I see moments where it, nothing is on the page and it's just Olivia Coleman, like giving it that sense of humor, giving it that timing, um, or maybe even the character is being a little bit written to her strengths. And that is also a little bit because the queen is not, I mean, she's not a side character, but the way they're telling the story is about all of the other people and events who are kind of crowding into that character's life and how she's balancing all of it. But episode four is just, it's about the queen and all of the writing, it's character development that is in line with the past three seasons that we've seen. And it's pretty extraordinary. And I think Olivia Coleman also does like a great job with the actual written script and the character and the reacting to like the horror show of her children. I mean, they all are. Do you have a favorite of the four? Who's your favorite on the show or in real life? No, on the show. I don't yeah. really think uh, that you need to like pick. It's definitely favorites. shifted. I think last season it would have been Charles and, yeah. and this season it's probably in, although let me get to the end of it. I mean, it's obviously not Edward or Andrew. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to just quickly before we get into Edward and Andrew and Charles a little bit, ask you, you start this episode up. Did you expect yeah. the wedding? No. If only because, number one, I read some spoilers about how they don't show the wedding. But I do also think in the The wedding previous, between Charles and Diana, obviously. Yes, yeah. The, like, the most watched royal wedding, I think, of all time. I, like, I don't... I should have gotten the statistics. It was close to like a billion people who watched it. I mean, that was everywhere and people taped it and watched it like over and over again right yeah, yeah. Uh, in- including me who dvr'd it when bbc america re-aired it before <laughs> the wedding of harry and megan and it was part of their like 12 hour block of programming i watched all of it i mean it's pretty boring you know they didn't really have the production values in 1981 that we expect from a royal wedding now anyway but no there was a sort of finality to episode three mm-hmm. And there was something intentional about the way they showed the rehearsal yeah, and kind of the real behind the scenes emotions where I was like, oh, okay, this is an interesting choice. And like, this is what we're going to get. Um, and also I've seen it before. So yeah. it was fine. Well, like, what me. would I, they do? Cause like there wouldn't be a lot of opportunity for people to be talking during that. So unless there would be some Fagin like wrinkle of history that they wanted to explore, I'm not really sure what they would kind of ex- do there. Right. And I, th- I mean, it, it happened at such a scale that even it would defy the, the, the crown's CGI budget. I will say, I was surprised that Diana disappeared for mm-hmm. two episodes. Yes. I mean, we'll, we'll get to episode five, but she is very briefly shown and she is heavily pregnant when she's shown in episode four and she just won't come out of the room. And in one way, that's really all you need to know about how their marriage is going and how everything is, you know, how everything is is shaken out. But on the other hand, I was like, huh, this is a choice. Diana, pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that the, that was interesting. And also the suggestion that Charles is starting to become under the influence of these like gurus and like self-help and nutritionists, which I didn't, I didn't know that about him. Oh yeah. The, the Lawrence Vanderpost reference. I only know about this from the Tina Brown book, but apparently he brought those books on their honeymoon and then mm-hmm. tried to get Diana who was 20 at the time of uh, their wedding to read the books and discuss them over dinner on their honeymoon. So that's how that went. And like, 
you can see the results of it in this episode of The Crown when they aren't just speaking to each other. But you also see it a little bit in the the garden scene when he's just kind of doing all of the he's jargon. He's talking about Xanadu, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like reciting poems and being like, it's important that I have like a expression of self in these gardens, which is... Uh, which is also like my, frankly, like my fuck pad next to Camilla, like, cause it's like yeah. 15 minutes away. Like when, when Elizabeth is like, yeah, yeah, also that's cool. But you also chose this house cause it's 15 minutes from Camilla. Yeah. She's yeah. Elizabeth is quite a gossip. I like how much of the show this season is essentially her going to Anne and be like, I heard you're sleeping with your security detail or her going to Charles and being like, I hear Diana never comes out of her room. And they have the recurring line, right? It's like, I heard talk or I heard chatter. And the person always says, I don't, I thought we didn't listen to chatter. Yeah, right. And that like keeps going again. And then of course they all do. I mean, it's really gossipy. One thing that is illustrated a little bit in like the Buckingham Palace of it all, which we see, but is also true at Kensington Palace, which is where Margaret lives and Charles and Diana live. And, you know, you see it at Charles's you know, personal Xanadu, fuck pad, country home. It's like the number of people that are around and are witnessing all of this. Yeah. And the royal family just doesn't care. And they just do whatever they want in front of dozens of people who then just gossip. There are no secrets. It's, they are not covert agents at all. Right. And then there's also this sort of high council of gossip that's like Anne, Margaret, the queen mother and Elizabeth yeah. who just gather to chit chat every, every couple of weeks. Let's talk a little bit about Fagin, which was, I think the closest this episode gets to, I'm mean, not a bottle episode, but a, a kind of huge detour where it's not about any of our sort of central characters right. per se, and is essentially about Thatcher without being about Thatcher. It's a Thatcher yeah. episode because, and is almost a tonic against, I think the criticism's, some people have levied against the show, which is making Margaret into a very Margaret Thatcher into sort of a sympathetic figure. And you've just gone through this experience of seeing her clearly like very concerned for the well-being of her son, who is on but also I, being like, fuck you to my daughter. Yeah, right. Especially being like, like you're you're my like not my favorite, so who cares? I have to say that like sometimes you just come across something that rich people are fascinated with like car rallies and you're just like why though like why do you care about <laughs> driving to Dakar like I don't I don't understand it <laughs> I feel like this is a euro thing so you would have more access to it I yeah. like I know I, that you at least follow this stuff Juliet is always trying to get me she's to obsessed the car with that one yeah. show yeah, yeah but I haven't because I'm an American and I don't take a lot of pride in that except for the fact that I don't care about like auto racing well, I just know that Patrick Dempsey quit Gray's so that he could do this. And you know that Fassbender is now like a race car driver? Yeah, it's like it's like robbing us of our greatest actors. Patrick Dempsey and Michael Fassbender. Um, anyway, I just thought that the Fagan episode was the tonic. It was the, this is what this woman's policies are really doing. And much like we were saying with Anne seeming to have like this complete understanding of her own impulses and behaviors, Fagan uh, is completely aware of like how the institutional state apparatus is making him into a marginalized person. Right. I mean, the basically soliloquy that he gives the queen once he breaks in for the second time and they, they have their meeting, um, which is all a true story. And mm-hmm. I think that it really, it did take 10 to 15 minutes before anyone uh, came to, to rescue the queen. 
but he, he gives a perfectly written diagnosis of the English or the the British experience and Thatcherism in the 1980s that also, if you want to read it, like certainly like has echoes of the present. I, I do find that every once in a while, one of the characters gives a speech about how Britain is falling apart mm-hmm. and you kind of, you look around and you can feel a little bit of intentionality, but yeah, it's, I, I can't imagine that that was how the conversation went in real life, just because you could spend days or weeks writing something that, uh, acute, but it's very effective. It's very effective. And, you know, I, I, I personally really enjoyed like the crown letting its hair down a little bit and playing some Elvis Costello and some specials yeah. and, you know, going around. <laughs> and <laughs> Can I tell you, like my husband, Zach was walking in and out and he walked in. I was rewatching part of this episode and he heard one of the music cues and was like, great music in the crown this season. And <laughs> I is. was just like, I know I was like, Oh, both times you've come in for the anti Thatcher episode in the eighties and yeah. like you're getting those cues. Yeah. And if people are interested in this time period and what it like, some of the stuff that Fagan is talking about, there's a novel by a guy named David Peace who some people might know from uh, the Yorkshire Ripper series of novels, like 1974, 1977. It was made into a movie with Andrew Garfield. Um, he also wrote a book called GB84, which is about the coal miner strike and Thatcher's sort of uh, handling of that. And it's it's a really dense but fascinating read if you're more in- if you're interested in reading more on the topic. I don't have like a ton to say about the Fagan episode, other than that to me was when they pull Fagan out of the room. And after she sends her servant back out to get the mm-hmm. tea and she does her little basically like collapse. I'm like, that's yeah. why you, that's why you get Olivia Coleman. It's true. Yeah. You pay the big bucks. I, it is a bottle episode. I mean, even though it's not it, it like in the sense that it has many locations and you kind of watch him break into Buckingham Palace multiple times, but in the sense that it's self-contained, but I, I was like so impressed by it just in terms of the crown just decides to do 50 minutes to completely dismantle uh, everything that it has already been saying about Margaret Thatcher. And it is, it's playwriting, um, but plays are great. And I, they both act it very well. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little about Tara Nellis. Like last time when you were on, we were speaking about how these episodes, now that this show has gone on for four seasons, it's got such a nice backlog of episodes that it can now echo. Mm-hmm. And so clearly... I went back to Pride and Joy, which is when um, uh, Elizabeth and Philip go to Australia and is also a big Margaret episode of her acting out and just kind of being like, I deserve to be an individual. And when, when Elizabeth comes back, she basically has to like wrap Margaret on the, on the knuckles for, for making a scene. Both of those sort of storylines were encapsulated in Charles and Diana's trip to Australia and New Zealand it starts out so bad, it gets a lot better. And then the sort of mega stardom of Diana sort of explodes. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of ground zero for where Diana becomes like a global phenomenon? Is that tour or had it been starting before then? It had definitely been starting before. And, I, you know, this is another thing of you're making a TV show. You have to condense some things. I think it like really definitely does condense those things. But she was a superstar out of the gate. And I think kind of the upstaging problem, as they call it, was absolutely in full effect in Australia. But I do think that the political historical role that the the tour is said to present in this show, which is that 
Australia. So Australia is part of the British Commonwealth, which is a leftover of the empire. And like, frankly, I'm not a constitutional or political expert, right. so we don't, I don't really need to present on that. But the the queen is a, a queen in name. And I think even at the beginning of the tour, there were rumblings of we don't even need a queen in name. And then the tour was such a wild success. And Diana specifically was such a wild success um, that to this day, I believe she is still the monarchy, the, the, the queen or recognized in Australia. And all of the, you know, it starts with a TV interview from the new prime minister of Australia. And those are real quotes. Yeah. So, so, so that is true. And that is a great summary of the geopolitical power that Diana had and everything about the resentment and the upstaging is definitely definitely true even if it had started a bit earlier yeah and i even thought just the idea that charles had these theatrical ambitions uh Mm -hmm. was great because you get into the psychology of wanting to be on stage and wanting to be in the spotlight and wanting to be uh seen and featured and appreciated and and that's such like a huge theme among all the children as we see in favorites too is well except for the the like like edward and andrew who are don't seem to care about that because they're just, just <laughs> bullying people. But um, Edward in particular gets a tough edit. I didn't yeah. know that he was that. Him just much being like, I want to be a cop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the braces and yeah. him just, I mean, he really, like, I got that a kid after. kicked out of school for smoking because yeah. he wasn't smart enough not to get caught. But you, you get the sense that if you think about these tours as, as a play, as a theatrical mm-hmm. experience that Charles is like, and I'm going to be the star. This is going to be my moment to do a bunch of stuff. And whether it's because she can't make it up a hill or because everybody falls in love with her, I am constantly sort of like off to the, to the side stage here while the spotlight's on Diana. I guess, you know, I, I, I think that the, the thing that this episode did was also show the scope of the show, which is, mm-hmm. like you said, it is very CGI'd in places, but you really do get the feeling that like, this is a show that like travels and and looks yeah. out into the wider world. I'm not sure if they shot this actually in Australia, but it it looks great. The sheep station in particular is yeah. so beautiful when they have that kind of magic hour confrontation when they both decide to admit that they love each other, which uh, I found to be an incredibly heartbreaking scene. I think only because I don't read the the Charles admission as entirely genuine or maybe it is genuine but you know you know at this point that the character is not someone who understands how to process emotions sure. and uh and doesn't know what to do with the person in front of him and is just trying to make a situation work and they both are it's uh i mean it, again it's really great writing no one would ever have a conversation that like focused and also it would not be resolved that quickly no. they really go from like camilla to oh i love you too and let's have more sex and like sex in like 90 seconds yes um but god i mean it is really beautiful and the the writing is beautiful and as you said the scenery like those cliffs or whatever behind them um, and it, it's a lot gorgeous. like the scene in pride and joy where they're they're like she's throwing bottles at philip at, at some house in, in Australia or whatever. Right. And then, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you, the last bit was the last scene between Elizabeth and Diana um, and the hug. Yeah. And, you know, for his, this is another example of like two people like perfectly articulating like these, these ideas, but it also was just an amazing collision of uh, 
post-war England or, you know, like mid-century English um, sort of sensibilities with this very modern idea that you need connection and touch and feeling and, you know, almost like this new agey kind of idea and Diana just kind of being like, I need to feel that you love me, not just sort of be part of the team. Yeah. And also really just a desperation on Diana's part. And I think, you know, they, they have been showing her bulimia throughout the episodes and they sort of show her family issues though not as much but they show her kind of loneliness and it's clearly a person who's at her wits end but at her wits end in a very different way than anyone else in the family Mm -hmm. and I find just kind of like the contrast in energies between Emma Corrin and everybody else to be really fascinating and it can almost be a little jarring at times Juliet Littman and I were talking on jam session a bit where Juliet was like something seems off to me with mm-hmm. Diana. And I was like, no, that's the point. Like she, like she didn't fit in at all. And she is, I mean, she's really young and she's struggling and she just, as you said, has a completely different, like emotional intelligence and system and just did not fit with these people at all. And it's a disaster to the point that, you know, that final climactic hug part of me wants to laugh when they do like the wide shot and you can just see Olivia Coleman's arms just kind of like flailing. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, in a way it's funny, but it's not, it's horrifying. It's really sad. And it is definitely one of the major problems that continues to haunt the Royal family. But you know, it's also just, I, I think Diana really did suffer as a result. They are not emotionally warm people as every episode seems to reinforce in one way or another. So you mentioned how she hadn't really appeared in the previous two episodes other than sort of kind of talked about in favorites. And then I don't think she's in Fagan at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's what they're trying to do to show us the isolation of the character. Like by not having her around and checking in on her, I mm-hmm. think that they are asking us to intellectually understand no one has seen her or she is just like in a room somewhere or she is being kind of shunted off to the side. I think that's smart. I was reflecting a, a lot on the fact that it's not the Diana show. It is the mm-hmm. crown and it is a show about the Elizabeth character. And I think if you were doing the pure Diana show, you would do it very differently. And if Peter Morgan is listening, please feel free to make that show. And I will watch every episode of it, you know, in whatever form you choose to do it. But it's a question of emphasis as well. And I think you're right that that, that that choice of perspective also does illuminate something about her existence and that she is just really kind of cut off from these people. And they, you know, see little references to her, like Anne, This is, can I just pick one bone? Yeah, sure. So everyone knows that, you know, I'm not biased. I love the crown, but every once in a while, something rubs me the wrong way. I think Anne is probably my favorite Mm -hmm. because she's not the only person who's a total garbage, not the only, she's the only child who's not a total garbage human. Um, But the way that she seems, they keep having Anne be like, I resent Diana's popularity and Diana's clothes. And, and Charles will too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's perceptive and it is also a little bit of just kind of like someone has to make the wheels turn. So she points out that major looming battle between Charles and Diana. 
But I don't really think Anne cared that much. It seems a little unfair to Anne, a character I enjoyed, who seemed to be kind of above it and that she keeps harping on it. I understand expositionally you have to do it because you can't have the whole circus in the show. It's more focused. But uh, justice for Anne. Yeah, I haven't watched ahead. I I also would love for Princess Margaret to get a couple more lines other than would you like Mm -hmm. some sherry and she'll break. (laughs) Because she obviously would probably, she obviously has the most perception of all of the people in that room of what's happening to these younger people. Yeah. And... Well, but that's what's so fascinating and is also a little sad is like how she and the queen mother are just like the unit, like the, you know, unmarried older women who just kind of show up for support team whenever in a way that's sweet and it's nice. And, you know, Helena Bonham Carter offers the queen a drink, but it happened very quickly. And for someone who we've invested in so much time in for her to just be now one of like the old ladies in the corner, it's like, it's like, oh, it's sad. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's my pleasure. You think well, things are going to go well in the last four episodes? I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating a super happy ending. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I do wish, I honestly, if they wanted to do like 15 or 20 of these, I don't, I, I would be fine. Like, yeah, I, that's I just, where I am too. I'm glad they're doing two more seasons. All right. So we'll finish up the season on Monday. It'll be episode seven, eight, nine, and 10. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 